Uh, I am going to go ahead and get us started, though. We are in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. This morning we're going to be focused on verses 5 through, what is that, 9? Yes, 5 through 9. Uh, and we'll, we'll back up a little bit and kind of remember where we've been and what it is the author of Hebrews is doing and how he's going about making his argument and, uh, and hopefully uh, get everything covered today through verse 9. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for time together in your word this morning. And we thank you for the author of Hebrews, uh, the inspiration of this author, uh, and the way that you have divinely superintended the work of this author so that it comes down to us today, 2,000 years later. Father, we pray now that even as we take up this work that, uh, that has been delivered to us over these 2,000 years, that the very same spirit that inspired it uh, and that dwells in us would enable us to read it and understand it correctly. Father, we, uh, we pray that... Having done so, we would be encouraged and, where necessary, uh, warned, Father. Uh, we pray that we would, uh, we would mit- listen much closer than those who have rejected these things in the past, uh, that we would, uh, we would know Christ as our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, remember that the, the book as a whole is really constructed like a sermon, uh, and it, it opens... Uh, just right out of the gate, there's no regular, uh, uh, the fancy word we would use is epistolary, uh, letter writing kind of introduction to the book. Uh, he just jumps right in long ago at many times in many ways, etc. cetera. Uh, and he's immediately placing Christ at the center of everything. Uh, Christ is at the center of this book explicitly. Uh, we, we can say, Christ, that all of Scripture is unfolding the person and work of Christ that we can find throughout the Old Testament, and those things are true. But sometimes it takes a little more effort to find him, uh, to go into a psalm where he may not be named. And maybe the Old Testament doesn't quote that psalm and say that's about Jesus, and that nonetheless, understanding that these things are all pointing to him, we can open it up and read it, and what we know about him becomes visible there in the, the psalm. But the author of Hebrews does not require us to do any such work. Uh, the, the book is explicitly about Jesus Christ from the opening verses all the way through. Uh, and everything else that he says, everywhere else that he, uh, I'll say wander, but he, certainly he does it with intention, everywhere else that he explores in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, he explores placing it in contrast with. Uh, comparing it in some ways, because obviously those things were pointing to Christ. So we, we do see a similarity between those things in Christ, but what he, he is at pains and labors so carefully to communicate throughout the book of Hebrews is that though we can see Christ in those things, uh, Christ is greater than any of those things. Do not make the mistake the author of Hebrews is saying in clinging to the shadows of the Old Testament and missing or rejecting the substance that is Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, I mean, that's that we could drop into any part of the book of Hebrews and everything I just said is true. Uh, he never wanders or strays from Jesus Christ as the center of his attention. And so what he's done in these opening verses, uh, he has, uh, has very quickly uh, contrasted Christ, compared and contrasted Christ with the prophets, 
and Christ is greater than the prophets. But then very quickly he turns to angels, and we talked about this. It's probably not angels next because there was some doctrine in Judaism of angel worship or angel divinity or, you know, elevating the angels. That's, that's not what the author of Hebrews is probably getting at. It's the fact that angels are messengers. Prophets also are messengers. Christ is, is the greatest of the prophets. The, it was by means of the prophets that God spoke, but today by a son. And Jesus Christ is that final perfect prophet. He's the very, uh, the very definition of a prophet, uh, a standard against which all other prophets are measured. And in the same way, uh, there's a, another group of messengers in God's economy. Christ is greater than them as well, and that is the angels. And so having made that argument in those following verses, right, so he picks up uh, transitions to that angel uh, comparison there in, uh, in verse, uh, I've got so many notes scribbled all over this thing. It's in verse 3, uh, no, verse 4, that he makes that first reference. And so he proves this argument by quoting Old Testament passages to show that the Messiah is greater than the angels. Uh, and having made that argument, he comes to the end of chapter 1, and in chapter 2, he gives us a warning, uh, right? This is the first of six uh, fairly well-known warning passages in the, author of he- or in the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, and what he does here in this warning passage is not simply stop his argument and say, okay, now, you better do what, what the Bible says, right? You better believe the gospel. You better not do this. You better do that. But his warning is tied. It's rooted deeply in the argument that he's just been making. And that is that those angels, as messengers, they brought a message in the past. It was a message from God. It was fully authoritative, but they were the ones who brought it. And we see that in that message that they brought, there was a judgment against those who would not receive the message that they bring. And the the logic that the author of Hebrews follows is, if angels brought a message and not listening to it resulted in judgment, how much more when it's not a prophet, it's not an angel, it is the Son of God himself who comes and declares our salvation. We must pay much closer attention, he says, and we talked last week about the fact that that comparative language of closer attention almost certainly has in mind the people of Israel in the Exodus. Uh, There's other indications there. I won't, you know, go all through last week's lesson again, but throughout these verses here, the first four verses of chapter 2, we see the author of Hebrews using language that's very reminiscent of the, uh, the Old Testament people, the Exodus account, the giving of the law uh, at Mount Sinai, and the, the, uh, the failure of that people to hear that message and believe. He says, we must believe this message. And not only has it come by the Son, uh, declared at first, he says, by the Lord, but it's received attestation. Uh, Christ has come with this message, and it's been attested by those who heard it. So we know it was his message. Those who heard it have told us that he said it. Also, God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So God himself has attested to the truth of the message. And you say, well, what's he talking about? Well, in the gospel accounts, right? Uh, That's one of the things that the, the miracles of Christ are accomplishing in his earthly ministry They are the attestations of the Father that he is, in fact, the Son and the Messiah, the Anointed One. Uh, You see the dove coming down and the voice from heaven at the baptism of Christ. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
uh, at the transfiguration, the apostles look up and there stands Christ, transfigured, glorified, and on either side of him, these Old Testament saints, uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, if I remember correctly, who the two are that are with Christ in the, the transfiguration, uh, themselves glorified, transfigured. Uh, and so God has given uh, adequate attestation of the truthfulness of the message that Christ brought and the identity of Christ himself who brought that message. So that brings us all up to verse 5, verses 5 through 9 we're going to look at today. Uh, one of the things you want to pay attention to when you're reading the Bible, and particularly when you're, you're trying carefully to understand it, uh, you're, you're in Bible study as opposed to, to simply reading it or meditating on it, uh, but this works when meditating as well. Look at the, the particular conjunctions, right? Uh, I know not all of us love uh, grammar. Not all of us remember grammar, uh, or maybe we just didn't learn it very well in the first place. But uh, ideas are connected in grammar by conjunctions, by logical conjunctions. And those logical conjunctions, I mean, like, there's, there's a logical conjunction that the entire gospel hangs on right? When Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, I urge you, therefore, therefore, that logical conjunction is the difference between the law and the gospel, and it puts the law and the gospel in right relationship with one another. Uh, and so you, you get other kinds of conjunctions, right? Like the one that I read during communion this morning uh, in Ephesians. Uh, it's a contrasting conjunction, Remember, you were at that time, right? And, and Paul goes on in, in 2.1 talking about the fact that we were, uh, we, were uh, we used to be uh, sinners following the world. And then he uses that conjunction there, right? But God. Right? There's a lot of, of truth and, and necessary truth, gospel truth, in that little conjunction where he says, but but God. So we want to pay attention to those things. We have one here, right? He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world. So the author of Hebrews is not running off in another direction. He's not starting a new section or a new topic per se. Everything he's about to say flows out of what he's been saying. And you're going to see that connection here, right? It was not to angels. So we're still talking about angels and comparing the, the Son of God to angels, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Uh, you can hear there, too, the logical connection with the warning he's just issued. Why is he reminding us that God subjected the world to somebody and it wasn't angels? It's because the one who will bring the judgment against us for not listening is the one who brought the message. Uh, Christ is the prophet, the great prophet. He's the 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 standard, the, the prophet extraordinaire, right? He's the, the prophet of all the world. He's also the king and therefore the judge. He's the one who gives the law, and he's the one who executes judgment against those who reject the law. And so that's why you've got this logical connection for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, and then he says this, this very strange thing that, uh, that scholars aren't entirely sure what to do with it. Uh, there, there are some ideas. There's one that I like in particular. I'll get to in a second. But he says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. Uh, and then he quotes Psalm 8, right? As if he doesn't know where this came from, right? 
uh, the, the author of Hebrews is certainly familiar with Psalm 8, uh, and he quotes it here. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little while, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Right? So the author of Hebrews is, is still, in a sense, he's, he's pivoting here. He's transitioning from the warning back to uh, what is true of Christ, but he hasn't entirely left the warning behind. He's undergirding that warning by reminding us that the very one who speaks and to whom we must listen is the judge that will execute all authority and judgment. And here in in Psalm 8, he finds evidence of that, uh, that we have been made a little while, uh, for a little while lower, we're going to have to talk about these verses here and the way he's quoting them, for a little while lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything, and this is his key, that verse 8 is what he really wants us to see, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, before we, we talk about 8, because we've got to keep reading past 8, he's going to begin unpacking verse 8 in what follows. Uh, I want to pause, uh, first of all, to ask for questions, but then to also talk about that intro to the quote. It's been testified somewhere. Why does he say it that way? Uh, the quote reads a little differently here as well than it does in your Old Testament. If you go back to Psalm 8, there's a difference. Uh, it's not a significant difference in terms of orthodoxy, but it's a difference. And so somebody surely noticed it and was going to ask about it anyway, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, any questions, comments, insight? Uh, I haven't seen what's set out next door. Is there anything good to eat over there? I'm kind of regretting not going and looking and maybe grabbing something for myself. So let's talk about uh, it's been testified somewhere. What, why do you think the author of Hebrews would say it's been testified somewhere? It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? He's not ignorant. He knows exactly where this is from, and he knows who said it. And elsewhere in the book, he's willing to name authors. He'll say so-and-so said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this uh, one of those cases where it's sort of a playful jest? Uh, yeah, that's, that's one option, right? That uh, it's been testified somewhere uh, when not only the author knows good and well where it was testified, but his audience knows good and well where it is too, right? I, uh, something that we might do today similar to this, though we do it more in jest and with less authority, right, is we might say, I'm pretty sure I've heard somewhere when we know good and well we've heard somewhere, and so does the person or people we're talking to, right? Uh, Parents might say this to teenagers, especially, right? I'm fairly certain I remember, fairly certain I recall telling you to do this, right? Well, we know good and well we said it, so does the teenager, Uh, and there's, there's a little bit of that, both playfulness and authority, right? Hopefully playfulness and not, like, hurtful sarcasm. Um... And so that's one possibility that the author of Hebrews is, uh, is doing that here. This is so well known, right? The, the force of that would be audience, right? The readers, the, the original audience of Hebrews, come on now. You know what Psalm 8 says, right? Of course the angels don't have authority over Christ. Christ is the one who has the authority. All things are subjected to him. And you know Psalm 8 so well, right? And so in a a sort of playful but authoritative way, uh, I'm pretty sure it says somewhere, and then he quotes Psalm 8, right? Very viable option. 
Other ideas? Graham. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and so uh, and a lot of commentators go this direction. Uh, I'm going to say it a little differently, but to the same effect, uh, is that the author is is intending to background David here and foreground God. Uh, he doesn't want to draw attention to David in this particular instance, right? He, it's not that he minds doing that generally. He does it elsewhere. Uh, but in this instance, he wants you not to be thinking of David. He wants you to be thinking of God who inspired and spoke through David, right? So that's, that's another option. Those are two, uh, and I, I don't necessarily choose between them. I don't know that both can be true uh, at the same time, but either one would be fine. Uh, and, and it adequately explains why he would say something that, that at least on a surface reading, seems so strange. There's also in the verse uh, an issue here, and it's, a, it's an issue of translation. It's not in the original language, uh, the, the uh, confusion, if you will. Um, it says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And if you turn, especially if you have an ESV, it's probably true in most translations. I know it's true in the ESV. If you go back, it says, uh, you have made him a little lower than, not for a little while lower than. The Greek uh, in Hebrews here is identical to the Greek in the Septuagint, which you will recall is the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. So he's quoting the Septuagint here. But the, the issue's not really in translation, per se. Uh, what, what I want to be clear about is the, we have an English translator working for us here, and he's made a decision. He could have made the other decision. The way the Greek reads can be translated either way. Because the word little, uh, if, if I was to translate this from the Greek in a fairly wooden way. Uh, it would read something like, uh, you made him little lower than the angels. And that word little in the Greek can mean for a little while, or it can mean lower or little as in a little lower. It can be translated either way. And you say, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to go back to the Hebrew then to sort this out. The Hebrew reads exactly the same. Uh, it, there's, there's no help in the Hebrew. Uh, and so the question is, how ought we to translate it? Again, as I said earlier, the good news is there's nothing at stake. It's not that the two things mean the same thing. They don't. They mean two different things. But those two things are both true. And so whichever one is, uh, is settled on, uh, both are true, and they don't significantly change the meaning of the text. Look at, the, at where uh, he goes after the quote. We're back in Hebrews, uh, and we're kind of in the middle of verse 8 where the, the block text in your, your Bible 
is restored. It says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. In the context, the author seems to be understanding it as a little while rather than a little lower. And so that's why the authors or the uh, translators of Hebrews in most of your English Bibles have made that choice. They've translated it uh, for a little while as opposed to a little lower, right? He's lower than the angels in either case, right? He's lower than the angels in one reading. He's a little lower than the angels in another, right? No difference, right? We can certainly understand the force of a little lower. That is, he's almost greater than the angels in his creation, but, but not quite. The angels are just a little greater, right? Uh, but uh, in either case, he's still lower than the angels. The author of Hebrews is leaning into the idea of that, that status only lasting for a little while. So I would suggest to you that I don't wrestle with Hebrews and how it's translated here and what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. I tend to wrestle more with why the Old Testament translators have insisted on a little lower than as opposed to a little while lower than. Because the Hebrew and the Greek in Psalm 8 can both be translated uh, a little while lower than. And certainly that's how the author of Hebrews seems to read it. Uh, and so I, I do wonder why the, our English translators go that direction. Again, thankfully, uh, there's no significant doctrine at stake here. It's just a, a, an effort to try and understand the original language the best we can. Any questions on that before we pick up with verse 8? David. Yes, thank you. That's the other thing I wanted to talk about because we, we you know, I brought this up in, uh, in the sermon this morning. Um, is Psalm 8 talking about humanity generally or is it talking about Jesus Christ? Yes. Right? It's talking about both. Uh, and so uh, how do I defend that view? Well, I defend that view because first of all, the language used in Psalm 8 I think is indisputably about humanity in general. He even goes to that, that, uh, that creation language. You've, you've given him dominion, right? And he goes on to use that same, you know, birds of the air, fish of the sea, you know, all of that language in Psalm 8 for a, a full, like, two verses is just lifted right out of the creation account. And it was true of Adam and Eve and would have been true of all of their offspring had they not sinned and will be true of all of us again one day, right? So, yes, it's about us. But none of us, it's, it's not true of any of us in a fullest sense now, is it? It's, it's only true of one person now, and that's Jesus Christ. And it will only be true of us in eternity because of Jesus Christ. In the same way that Jesus is is the, uh, the ultimate definition and example of a prophet, and all other prophets are measured against Jesus Christ. 
in, in a similar way, we can say that anything and everything that can be said of us in terms of salvation, in terms of what God has promised us and how he's going to fulfill that for us and in us, is true first of Christ. If we will be resurrected, it's because Christ is the resurrection and the life, right? Uh, if we will be made perfect in heaven, again, I mentioned it in the sermon this morning, how do, what, what's the language we use to describe that? Christ-likeness, right? If we are restored to the image of God, it's because Christ has been restored to the image of God, and therefore we are restored to that image. So that I don't think it's difficult to say that Psalm 8 is both about humanity in general and about Jesus Christ. It's in different ways, though. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about Adam in his original creation. It's about Jesus Christ forever. It's about us in as much as we are in Christ. Right? And that truth about us, too, it's not entirely future, is it? Uh, it's also present. We are being restored to the image of Christ, to the image of God that was lost in creation. So, yeah, that's a really good question. I wanted to address that in the sermon, but I didn't have time. And so uh, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll address it in Sunday school, and hopefully uh, those who stay will include whoever was wondering about it. So, Okay, any other questions? Let's take a look then. Uh, we'll finish up today with that last line in the quote from Psalm 8, leading into uh, the language through verse 9. So he's quoting Psalm 8, and, and what he really wants to, to get at is, is this closing expression, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Look back at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, Right, so how's he going to prove it wasn't to angels? He's going to quote the Old Testament, putting everything into subjection to Christ, not to angels. It doesn't say putting everything in subjection under their feet, referring to the angels, but under his feet, referring ultimately to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, middle of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, including, the implication is, judgment against those who will not listen. That is under his control as well. At present, the author admits, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The author, he, he stops just shy of actually saying not, you know, already not yet, right? Uh, he's, he's owning that understanding of redemptive history. He says, we do not yet, yet, right? So there's not, in fact, he does say not yet. He just doesn't say already. If he'd gotten the already in there, that would have been amazing. Uh, we don't see it yet. We don't see what yet? We don't see everything in subjection to him. We do see some things in subjection to him, right? And we will one day see everything in subjection to him. But the author both acknowledges we don't see everything, but implies we do see some things. What do we see, verse 9? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And here, shockingly, if it hasn't occurred to you, he finally names Jesus. All right, we're nine verses in, and he hasn't actually said Jesus or Christ. He's referred to a son, and the rest of it's been pronouns. He, him, his. Here, finally, 
he names him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And by saying namely Jesus, he's coming out expressly inter- interpreting Psalm 8 here as being about Christ, which certainly we affirm. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so the, the author of Hebrews is beginning to, to draw in now, uh, really for the first time since the opening prologue, the, the prologue to the book, uh, where he makes reference to Christ making atonement. Here, he brings in for the first time a direct reference to the suffering of his death. Uh, it's, it's, he's tying together the death of Christ with the, uh, the role of Christ in being given everything. Everything is placed in subjection to him. So in other words, he's made the logical argument that Christ is the greatest messenger. He, in fact, is the son. Uh, We even see, like, so there's these echoes, right, of that parable in the Old Testament where the landowner, the vineyard owner, sends a servant to the, uh, the, the tenant's who won't listen, and they kill his servant, and he sends another servant, and they kill his servant, and he sends another servant, and they kill his servant, and he finally says, I'll send my son, and he sends his son, and they take the son out and kill him. And that's Jesus, right? Uh, here, a son has come as the messenger of God himself to deliver this message, and because it is the son himself, and, and it's not only superior to angels, but when the angels brought a message, it was a good message too. It was true and should have been listened to, but they didn't listen to it. And therefore, judgment fell on those who wouldn't listen. And if that's true of them, how much more true for us if we will not hear from Jesus Christ the good news of the gospel and believe what he has said about our salvation. Listen, the angels aren't going to judge you. Jesus himself is going to be the judge on the day of judgment. And I'll give you proof of it. The Bible says that everything will be placed in subjection under his feet. And why? And this is where verse 9 comes in. Why will it be placed in subjection under his feet? Because of what he has done. Because he's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Yes, Christ has the right to judge because he is God. But Christ also has the right to judge because he has received the judgment of God on our behalf. That is held out to everyone And those who will not believe will be judged by him, a right that he has earned by going to the cross and suffering the judgment of God in our place. Because of that death, he has been crowned with glory and honor. So this is the the argument as it unfolds here for the author of Hebrews. Let me pause again. uh, Questions or observations? That's a good question. One of the difficulties in the book of Hebrews is that he is affirming the things that are true of Christ in his divinity. He's also focused quite heavily on the things that are true of Christ in his humanity. So one of the things I think we've talked about, and I can't remember if it was in here or in another setting, but Jesus Christ is king. He's always been king, always, right? 
inasmuch as he's the second person of the Trinity who is sovereign over all things. Uh, and, the, and you say, well, yeah, but not king until he came uh, and, and was incarnate, right? Uh, yes, that's true. But in the Old Testament, God says to Israel, I'm your king. All right, so Christ, uh, I, and I, it's tough to talk about this uh, without crossing things up. Right, technically, he's not Christ until he comes. He's not Jesus until he comes and is incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God uh, in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we see him as the king of his people. Even when Saul and David and Solomon and Jeroboam and all of the rest are sitting on the throne, they do so, like I was talking about today, as regents. That We call them kings, and God is fine with them being called kings, but they're not actual kings, they're regents. And the proof of that is in the simple fact that in a kingdom, the, the, the law is given by the king. Whoever gives the law is the king. And none of those kings gave the law, did they? God gave the law, and these kings are required, it's actually required in the law of Moses, that as they come to the throne, they have to write out an entire copy of the law. Why? Because they're not actually, in the truest sense, the king. They're the regent. God is the king. And so as king, they must acknowledge that he is the king by taking his law and writing that law out and recognizing that their role as king is to implement God's law among his people, right? And so, so yes, there's a sense in which he is coming into a kingdom. The gospels are clear about that too. Uh, they're looking for a kingdom. Christ says at one point, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom is upon you. Uh, John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Right? Clearly there's some sense, it's not that God wasn't sovereign. So what's happening here? Well, there's, there's a temporal kingdom, one that will never end, but it does have a beginning. And Christ is the king of that kingdom, and he comes into his rule and his reign. He ascends into his role as king, ascends to the throne that's his. Uh, and you see that language in the Psalms, for example, where God talks about the Messiah becoming the king, right? As if the Son of God's not already king. It's just king in two different ways. And so when we look down here, it says uh, he left nothing outside his control. Uh, I would suggest in this context, it's the kingdom that Christ inherits because of his finished work that's being referred to. And in that kingdom, there is nothing outside of his control. So it's talking about everything. But again, in the context, what the author is most concerned with is the question of judgment, right? Uh, that's, that's inherent in the language of subjection. Everything is placed in subjection under him, uh, putting everything in subjection under his feet. All of this language that's being used here to describe this authority, this subjection, suggests judgment, which is consistent with the warning we've just heard, right? Why, are, why is it so serious that we hear this message and believe it? Not only because of the truth of it and that God himself has affirmed it, but that the very one who brought it has the authority over all things. Everything is, has been placed in subjection under his feet, and he will execute judgment. So, I don't think the term 
is exclusively about judgment. It's not denying all of the other ways in which things are subjected to him or under his subjection. Uh, but that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to prove and get at. Other questions? Observations? Okay, uh, one of the things that I would personally like to, to wrestle with, and we can do a little bit now, though I, I'm genuinely wrestling, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, why does the author of Hebrews hold the name of Jesus for so long before he uses it? Uh, that opening to the book, those first four verses are so powerful. Uh, it would have been perfectly natural to assume they would have crescendoed in the name of Jesus Christ. But they didn't. He never, he never actually names Jesus. Why do you guys think he waits until verse 9? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the direction that my mind is going is very, very similar to that. But I'd love to hear other ideas. Yeah? This sense of like delayed gratification here where it's like this uh, intensity is building and this, uh, we're, we're awaiting this and then finally it comes and it's just this high point. Yeah. You know, his name is high. It has that feeling of like, a, like you were talking about, you expect that in these verses, but even delaying it longer, I guess it would just mm -hmm. increase that crescendo. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think actually both those answers tie in together, uh, and what I'm thinking goes that direction. Yeah, there's a, a, a literary value uh, to holding the name for a bit, to be asserting these things about him without naming him, and then finally, uh, in, in a, a key moment, unveiling that name, right? What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. Yeah, because it's so heavily rooted in the Old Testament. There's nothing he's said yet until verse 9 that a, a first century Jew can't affirm, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, because that, even the language of son... God's son, and that son being the Messiah and being the king, that's, I mean, goodness gracious, that's Psalm 2. You're not even out of the second Psalm yet, and you're getting that language. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you, the psalmist says. Um, and so, yeah, there's a value to getting someone who you're trying to persuade of this, uh, a value to saying, you remember the Old Testament says this, and it says this, and it says this, and, it, and you're going, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Jesus is who I'm talking about. You go, oh, okay. Okay, now I've got to reckon with that because everything you were saying up to that point is very persuasive and, in fact, true. That's the Old Testament. I know it says that. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a, a polemical value to it. Uh, others? Other ideas? 
Yeah, I. Yeah, I think he's writing to believers, uh, so they wouldn't have necessarily. These we're not talking about uh, unbelieving Jews in the synagogue uh, and persuading them, but what we are talking about is a community that uh, that would have been predominantly Jewish. They would have known the synagogue. You know, this is a group that that was uh, that came into the Christian faith out of, a, of the synagogue. They're very familiar with Judaism, with the history of the Jewish people, with the, uh, the religion of the Jewish people, the Old Testament. Many of them would have been Jews themselves, uh, probably, as I said in the introduction, with, a, with some Gentiles present as well. Um, but by the time the author of Hebrews is writing to them, uh, the warning passages, I think, are the strength uh, are the basis for arguing that he's writing to a group that have at least nominally accepted Christ. Um, but there seems to be a temptation to go back to Judaism or to mix some, and I'm calling it Judaism, it's a little anachronistic. What we call Judaism today doesn't exist yet in the first century. There's a Jewish faith, there's that Old Testament people of God, and there's a rabbinical uh, character to it, but it's not quite what today uh, what has become Judaism, because the temple still exists. And Judaism, we know today, was formed and constructed and developed in the absence of a temple. And that's Judaism. Uh, so I just want to admit it's hard to keep reminding myself not to call it Judaism, uh, but in a very technical sense, it's not. So there would have been temptation, though, to, to mix some of that in with their faith uh, for a lot of different reasons. Most of them would have been raised in that synagogue context. And so in the same way, though far more serious than the example I'm about to use, uh, but uh, in a similar way that uh, I wrestled with, having been raised Baptist, I wrestled with infant baptism uh, when I was struggling to, to you know, figure out whether or not to remain in the Baptist church or become Presbyterian. Um, and even having, having very patiently over an extended period of time wrestled with that question very carefully and in conversation with others and studying God's word, when I finally came down to the conviction that this is right and even found it to be beautiful, there was still that, that gut check moment where I remember you know, discussing it with Leslie and us kind of going, okay, yeah, this is what we believe. And in the very next moment, realizing that that meant that we needed to have our sons baptized. And you almost feel like you're starting over again. There's such a, a, a cultural gut check to that, right? Uh, you, you, you've believed it, but now you have to actually do something that feels so contrary to years and years and years of uh, the way you were raised, the, the church you were raised in. It would have been far deeper and harder and more serious for those who grew up in Judaism to have abandoned what they were taught to embrace Christ and all that that means, right? In a sense, he is certainly, of course, the fulfillment. He's the culmination of all of the Old Testament. And if you see it that way, that makes it easier. But you're, now you're going to uh, not circumcise your children anymore. I mean, that's a big deal in the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm in, I'm in. I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know about this not giving the sign of the covenant to our kids anymore. Uh, that I'm going to have a harder time with. 
uh, and, uh, and going to the temple and making sacrifice, I don't, I don't have to go make atonement anymore? I mean, this is what our people kept getting in so much trouble for all these years, is we weren't following the law of Moses, and now all of a sudden you're telling me that Jesus is coming, I don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore? Maybe we just keep it a little bit. It's just a little bit, just to hedge our bets, right? So it could be as simple as that. Uh, it's probably got something to do with some um, uh, persecution as well, where uh, the persecution of Jews at this time was not as prevalent as the persecution of Christians. So it would have felt a little safer to go back to what you knew uh, in order to, to not be identified with a, a sect that was being persecuted. So. so, yeah, I don't think the name Jesus would have been offensive to them, uh, but as they're reading their Old Testament and going, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's still something to this stuff. The author of Hebrews goes to that Old Testament and says, yeah, you remember this? You remember where it says this? That Old Testament you keep wanting to go back to, it keeps talking about Jesus, right? And he, he strings you along for a bit before he pulls the curtain back. I think most of his readers know exactly where he's going. I don't think anybody's in suspense in the original audience about the fact that the son he's talking about is Jesus. But there's a rhetorical effect to not saying the name until he gets to a certain point, right? I think, too, I like what, what some of the others said, that uh, there's a suspense in, in the Old Testament, right? God is revealing this Messiah in, in a progressive way. There's an anticipation on the part of the people that anticipation is looking forward to the Messiah, wanting the Messiah to come. And there's a point in history where, like the author of Hebrews finally says the name of Jesus, a point in history where that Messiah finally comes. Uh, and so perhaps he's, in a sense, mimicking that in redemptive history, right? Um, notice, too, the context where he finally says the name. There's a, it's a coronation, right? Uh, a coronation was often a time where a king would take a throne name. Um, I don't know if you guys have watched The Crown, but I think it was in season one when Elizabeth becomes queen. There's a scene where they've just told her that her father, the king, is dead, and they ask her what her name will be, right? They're expecting her to take a throne name, but her name is actually Elizabeth, and she says, I think that's good enough, right? And takes Elizabeth, her actual name, as her throne name, and so it's, notice he says here, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor, right? So there's, there's a sense of here in the narrative as it's unfolding, as the, the audience, the original audience, and we ourselves today are being uh, pointed to this Christ, to this son, there's a point in the unfolding that the author of Hebrews is doing where this son is crowned. And it's at the coronation that he pronounces that name. And so I think that's part of it too, which is not, I think, to the neglect of all the other observations that were made. I think all of this is together what's happening with the author of Hebrews uh, and why it is that he holds that name and this is the, the spot where he finally says it. So, okay, we're out of time for this week. Uh, next week, as I mentioned in the announcements, is Palm Sunday. We will have Sunday school. It'll be a regular Sunday morning. Uh, there'll be a Palm Sunday sermon, uh, but the, uh, the schedule for the day will be our usual Sunday schedule. And uh, in Sunday school, 
we uh, will stay on schedule as well. We'll pick up with verse 10, and hopefully, yeah, I think it's reasonable to hope that we can finish chapter 2 next week. Um, and so, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for the, uh, the author of Hebrews, for the work of Hebrews, for your spirit. Uh, we thank you that Jesus Christ is, in fact, crowned and is our king. We thank you that he has spoken uh, and that the, the message that he declares, uh, it speaks a, a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, and, Father, that you have called us to this. You have opened our ears to hear this message. Father, we pray that we would indeed heed the warning of the author of Hebrews and pay much closer attention than those who have gone before us and have not believed. Father, we pray that uh, you would keep us by your Spirit, seal us into the day of redemption. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.